0: is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part one with Hunter Arnold, we get right down to it. We talk about his early inspirations in musical theater, and he talks about the three things and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this part one with Hunter Arnold. Keep on keeping on. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Hunter Arnold. Hunter, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today.
1: My pleasure. Glad to be here. The,
0: you know, we were talking about it before we hit record. There are a lot of things coming up for you. I was looking uh, the other day, doing the homework and whatnot, between, uh, was what it, Evan Hansen, Tina, Hadestown, Little Shop, um, Chicken and Biscuits announced this morning, uh, Doubtfire, Diana, Company. I'm not even naming all of them. You have another at least 15 shows that are gonna be opening. How are you staying centered through all of this? How are you keeping yourself on track?
1: Well, so I'm kind of a bizarre combination of things that's pretty rare in the producer world because I do a lot of lead producing. So shows like Hadestown or Little Shop, uh, but I also co-produce with a lot of other partners as well. And so there's a huge difference between those. Right. As a lead producer, you're essentially like a routine startup entrepreneur, right? You get the rights, you build the team, you finance it, you put the show up, you run the show. Mm. When you're a co-producer, basically you're helping other people finance their show. And sometimes you're, I guess what I would call a bit player. So like on Dear Evan Hansen, right. um, you know, I, I was there early on to help with some things like the Tony campaign, like understanding how digital and social media worked because I was kind of a younger member of the producing team. But once that shows up and running, like I, I don't have anything to do with it other than an opinion on how it's operated. Sure. So the workload on the co-producing shows is is effectively non-existent and really mostly done by my staff. It's the lead produced shows that that take up all of the time.
0: Now, I, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm going to ask it. What show is taking up the most time right now for you and possibly why?
1: <laughs> so, Hadestown is probably taking up the most total time of the shows that, that were already operating, right? Of, of the shows we're bringing back. There's, there's shows that are coming in that take an, a tremendous amount of time because you're literally creating them. Right. Uh, but Hadestown is an interesting one. But, uh, like for example, we had to wait much longer than we'd hoped to announce when Broadway was coming back mm. because we have a national tour, mm. a Broadway company, and a Seoul production in Korean that all had to happen in about a 12-week space. Now, ironically, um, our director, Rachel Chafkin, um, her associate director, whose name is Jalen Livingston, who's in Korea helping set the show right now, also happens to be the director of Chicken and Biscuits, which we announced yesterday. So not only are you trying to like juggle all of these things, you have humans that literally, like Jalen has to fly back from Seoul, Korea, South Korea on a Monday and start rehearsal on Tuesday at 10. (laughs) So like, like, you know, Broadway's never brought all its shows back at once before. It's a total puzzle and it's a juggling match. Um, but luckily it seems for the most part, like it's it's all working out. And I think certainly we're all glad to be back to, to making things and can't wait to see our audiences again.
0: I love that. I love that. Um, okay. We're going to talk about lessons and the present moment a little bit more, but I want to take it back to the beginning of time for Hunter Arnold. What were sure. your entertainment dreams growing up?
1: Um, it's I I laugh at that question because uh, I was about six years old when I started I I wouldn't have known the word producer probably until I wouldn't really understood what it was until I was in my late teens but around around six I used to make the neighborhood kids uh, do shows in my backyard I would then lock the fence and make their parents pay a quarter to get in so (laughs) I don't think that there was much of a question as to where I wanted to end up um yeah. you know then there's this interesting thing it's a thing i like to talk to uh, to students a lot about which is the educational pathway um doesn't really represent the scope of potential jobs that the theater industry really has like you go up through theater whether it's church or community or school and like your choices are really kind of like to be an actor or to be on stage group because very 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 few school or community programs, they're not letting the kids design, they're not letting the kids choreograph or direct. So you kind of have these two tracks. Yeah. Within that construct, I went through the performance track, but it was always something that I sort of liked the process of building it, but couldn't care less about the performing of it itself. That was like not my wheelhouse or interest level. I loved the rehearsal process. I loved the conversations about it. Um And then my senior year of high school, we had this Thing called Senior Project Week, which is basically your last week of high school. Um, you could do anything you wanted for a week. And then at the end of the week, so you started on, on a Saturday and then on Friday you presented it. And I now look back and I'm like, we did what? Uh, but I like raised $50,000 and put up a full scale production of Little Shop of Horrors and then presented it. I mean, we had like sponsors and, you know, like we ran our own merch booth. I mean, it was insane. I look back, but you didn't, you don't know what you can't do until somebody's told you it can't be done. Right. Um, and I've tried to carry that attitude through my whole career. Right. Which is like, I love it when somebody tells me like, well, that's impossible. Like, yeah. well, that just means no one else is going to compete with me.
0: Exactly. What was this raising the $50,000 I have to ask was this help from um, teachers and what have you or what were your what were your tricks of the trade? What did you learn in that time asking and getting
1: um, it was all from like local businesses and it was what we, we you know we wanted to, to like we re- wanted to rent the professional plant. We you know we needed to build a set which obviously like I wasn't just going to get my friends together and build we weren't people who built things right. you know we had to pay for the rights of the show it was just all of that kind of stuff so we went around and literally like sold brand sponsorships and you know like five thousand from a florist here and we went to the local restaurant and did like a tie-in deal and you know it was basically a brand marketing gig
0: what did your parents teach you about
1: work ethic you probably don't want to ask me that question okay next question um, <laughs> well no here's here's what i will say. um my my dad so my mother was a homemaker and and so that's kind of a different thing because you don't even really clock when you're a kid that that's work right um, you know you you think of it as a different category i will say that my dad who's had a very patchy career but, w- but one of the things that i i did learn from him is when he was doing something he loved he was relentless at it hmm. and the results always worked anytime he did something cause it seemed like a good gig to take or, or, you know, cause it would pay the bills for the family or whatever, whatever it was, Mm. it never really turned out that well. And so I think that, um, you know, if there's, if there's one thing from a, I, I think I got my work ethic mostly from other places and frankly, a lot of it by nature, but if there was a thing that I learned at home specifically, it was like, it's not worth it to try to take a path that doesn't really sing for you. Like if your heart's not in it, there's how, how do you land it exceptional when you don't feel exceptional about it? Like you can't, you're going to land it mundane or average. Right. And some people that's what they want. They want, you know, like trust me, there are days where I'm like, what is it like to be a carpenter where I wake up? Like before I go to bed, there has to be a table. So then I make a table and then I'm done. Hmm. And I just I, like, that must feel so nice that there's like not endless unknowns and constant stress and anxiety and 42 million people that want your attention. Right. But I'd be born in a week, yeah. you know, I'd be born in a week. So I think I learned, like, if you're not chasing what you love, you are by definition, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you are by definition seeding the idea of excellence. Yeah.
0: Well said. Well said. The same question. What What did your parents teach you, but about kindness?
1: Um, I definitely grew up in like a yes, ma'am, no, ma'am world mm-hmm. on my mother's side. My parents were divorced. All right. Um, And my father was sort of the opposite. My father, like, you know, the filthier, the joke, the funnier he thought it was, but he's incredibly charming. And so I kind of learned from both sides of that world that like, to be, that you can be conversational and funny and off the cuff and maybe non-traditional even is, is the way to define probably my existing personality. But that doesn't mean that you can't also rule your life through the rules of common courtesy, Mm -hmm. you absolutely can. Think about how you're having an effect on others. Uh, You know, want to do good for others, want to make someone's day better, be grateful. You know, I think a lot of people, especially in the entertainment industry, especially on the producing side of things or the business side of things, you know, kind of think that power has to come through aggression. And it doesn't. I mean, I've found that it's much more powerful. It takes longer, right? It's real easy to lead through edict and through threat. yeah. Because people jump and things happen quickly and um, it's much more difficult to lead because everybody wants to do what you think is the right idea because they trust you and they know you will take care of them. Mm. Takes longer to build that, but I find it to be vastly more effective. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I wanna go back to this, you brought up a great point with the carpenter and being bored after one day building the table. How are you, with everything going on, balancing the difference between, or not difference for you, between achievement and fulfillment. How are you viewing those two in tandem?
1: Uh, When you say achievement, are you talking about things like critical success and awards or are you talking about money?
0: Well, you know what, actually, I wonder if you can answer it both ways because I'm seeing achievement as just, you know, the benchmarks of getting somewhere, but also the fulfillment. I mean, of course you want to work on everything that fulfills you, sometimes you don't. (laughs) Things happen and I'm just curious what that balance is yeah i mean i listen i think that the
1: honest answer to that is if i didn't have to put you know a roof over my head and if i didn't have a a husband wildly out of my league who happens to like nice things i i definitely would maybe do a lot more and i don't mean a lot more but like probably exclusively things like deaf west spring awakening like for my personal taste meaning what do I want to see as a ticket buying audience member every night? Mm-hmm. I definitely produce shows that are not my own personal taste. Mm-hmm. What I won't do is I will not touch a project that I don't deeply love, but that doesn't have to mean it's my personal taste. So, for example, you. Um, if you know a lot of my career, if you kind of looked at it, and you could probably tell just by looking at the titles on paper, mm-hmm. are like, I need to do two shows like this so I can afford to take the risk of doing this show, which is a terrible economic idea, but man, if I'm not gonna put that art into the world, who is? So I better like suck it up and do it. Yeah. Um, a great example of balancing those things is a show like Anastasia, right? Which mm. is a traditional sort of, it, it wasn't from the golden era, but it's written like a traditional golden era musical. Mm. It's aimed at a demographic that I'm not in. You know, it's it's, based on underlying material, which is not always my favorite thing to do, although Spring Awakening was too, but in a very different way. Um, So you looked at that on paper and you'd go, well, why would Hunter do that show? And I can give you a host of reasons. You know, the playwright was one of my best friends, husbands. Hmm. Lynn and Steve are people whose music I've listened to my entire formative life, Hmm. who I love dearly as people. You know, Darko is a director who I think is brilliant. And while he's had a lot of success, he hadn't had anything that was like a big commercial success that might pay him for a lot of years and move his ability to to choose his own projects up a level. So like even the people alone, I would have done that show just for the people that are in my life who also support my life because they create work. It's, you know, there's a virtuous circle there. Then when you think about the content itself, not only do I think it was really brilliant and artfully done, but, but I could stand at the back of that theater and did many, many, many nights. And I, did, I would rarely watch the show. What I would watch was the audience. And, and when you are at the back of something that you had a small hand in creating and you're watching a kid, somebody who's eight years old, and you know, you can tell it's the first musical theater piece that they've ever seen in their life, or at least on Broadway, mm-hmm and then you're watching them catch the bug. <laughs> like it may not be the show that I'm like, I wanna watch it every night, right. but man, there's not much you could do for a living that is luckier than that. Yeah. So so there's always a balance. Like I'm not gonna do a project that brings me no joy, but the joy can come from different angles.
0: Right well yeah there's always something right either it's oh getting to work with someone i've always wanted to work with or the content or you know this is really going to fund the next project that's going to be super experimental so um going on with the balance questions work-life balance how are you do you shut off do you give yourself uh boundaries what's your work-life
1: balance um I have none. <laughs> uh, <laughs> great next <you> know, question. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean I think I think the, the truthful answer to that is and it and it sounds like a trope, but it's not. It's like most hours of the day, there are only two things that I would like to be doing: spending time with my husband or creating theater. And you know he has his own life and he has his own job and all of that kind of stuff. So like the amount of hours you spend together are sort of predefined, right? You know, when they're going to be, you know, I'm going to see him from when I get home until he goes to bed. Every other waking hour that I have, there's not a choice I would make that wasn't working on creating theater. So like to an outsider, they'd be like, you're a complete workaholic. And I would be like, if that's a bad thing, but if it's because that is what I drive uh, derive the most joy from mm. i don't get what's wrong with that i mean really the only area outside of work and spending time at with my family family and friends chosen family whatever you want to find as, sure. the only other thing that i actually carve any balance out for is exercise and that's just because if i didn't i wouldn't be able to go as hard as i go right. you know we do the good news is we we work in a seasonable seasonal business right. so like i'm pretty good at and I understand how entitled that I am at, you know, I, I it's not just through hard work. It's also through a lot of good fortune. If you end up doing this at this level, mm. like there are a lot of people that have the skill that never get the opportunity. Mm. So I realize how, what I'm about to say is going to sound a little entitled, but I am pretty good at when I'm not in production, working from a beach somewhere. Mm. But, you know, it, I mean, my husband's great. He'll turn his phone off for five days. You know, we about about six months after we started dating, he was like, Oh, you're just, you're literally going to take calls by the pool. And I was like, Oh, hundred percent. That's what I'm going to do. Like, but but look at the view. Isn't this lovely? Yeah. And if, and if, you know, I even stack my days. So it's like after two o'clock, I'm only speaking to people I know really well and am close with it's still work calls. Cause then I can have a margarita or two.
0: Right. 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 Yeah.
1: But, but that's about the extent of my, of my work-life balance.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. I really appreciate the answer. The mentors in your life past or present, standout lessons, anything you would speak on in regards to early mentorship or, you know, present?
1: Yeah, yes, there's there's mean there's so many lessons. First of all, everything in life is about who, you know, and I think I'm very lucky that the people that I knew in my late teens and early 20s were not only not competitive or protective, but were rooting for me and were going out of their way to make sure and also hard on me right like honestly appraisals honest appraisals yeah um but i think the three like if there's three things that i kind of live by every single day um two of them are sort of personal and one of them is business the first one is like you absolutely do not get better you do not grow in life unless you accept failure like Mm-hmm. I don't grow in my interpersonal relationships if when I get something wrong or I hurt somebody's feelings, like if I always want to advocate for Well, yeah, but the reason why I did it is I'm not analyzing it at all. I'm not looking at it to figure out how I could do it better next time. I'm just trying to justify why I'm not wrong or why it failed, but it failed for external purposes. Mm-hmm. So I have a very dedicated practice of always turning inward. Like, yes, I've had shows that I think failed because the market fell out and the economy changed. Right. But thinking about it that way does absolutely no good. What does do good, what does create growth is if you say like, all right, well, how could I have built the thing so it could have succeeded even if the, mo-? like there is something I failed to see or I failed to do. No one ever gets it perfect. So I think learning that there's no shame in failure is a huge early lesson that I was taught from some mentors. Uh, the second one that I, that I carry every day is and i share this a lot particularly with it's true of any position but it is particularly true of performers and talent Mm -hmm. which is there is no one or maybe there's a handful maybe there's like seven on planet earth but there's almost no one that is so talented that you're going to want to rehire them if they're a miserable miserable person to be in a room with there's so much talent out there and by the way the audience really can't perceive the difference. Like it's, it, I, I think of it like wine, right? Like I love wine, but but I have a limited palate. I can totally tell the difference between like a fifty dollar bottle and a hundred dollar bottle. Mm. Over that, it's kind of indistinguishable to me, right? Mm. All I know is, do I like it? Right. And that, so that's that's how I approach wine. The audience approaches theater that way, right? Yeah. They will never know if the person in the role is literally the best person on planet earth to play that role, all they know is, is that person incredible? Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately there's so few roles in the professional theater world, there are way more people who could be incredible in those roles than there are roles. Yeah. So we have our choice as producers, as directors, we have our choice of an, a, a, what feels like a near infinite amount of insane talent. Mm-hmm. I'm always gonna pick the person I also wanna be in the room with every single time. So like be the person people want to be in a room with. That's the second one I was taught early. Um, And I was pretty obnoxious and pretty cocky in my early years. And I had a a dear mentor of mine pull me aside and basically say like, there's literally nothing in your way, except for you. So how do you want this story to go? Um, And I had to learn humility really quickly. And then the last one is a business lesson, which is one I use with designers, with directors all the time. Um, I had a very early boss, he was, he was talking about expense accounts, like, like, so what you decide to do with the company's money and whatnot. He said, I'll tell you, I'll make you a deal. If you spend my money as though it's your money, meaning you spend it the same way you would, if it was coming out of your pocket, Hmm. then I'll treat it like it's your money. And the second you start spending my money, like it's someone else's money. I'm going to treat it like it's my money. And that has been really helpful to me because you give a designer a budget And if you give them total freedom, but complete constraints within the budget, that's the best possible scenario because creativity does not come from a blank check. Creativity comes from solving for constraints. Oh yeah. I never tell people what to do, right? I never say like to a scenic designer, you can't spend 30% of the budget on a rotating platform. We need more color. We need more, like I would never do that, but I will hold them accountable for like, you got to treat every dollar like it's your own. And if you wouldn't invest it, don't invest it just because it came from me. Mm.
0: Those are really powerful lessons. And they seem to almost apply to everything. I mean, not just theater too, though. This is like life. You know, those are one-on-one lessons on life. The moment you had to get real with yourself and have that humility, what was that self-talk? How long did that take? What was your, what were your feelings inside? It's very difficult for people to look inside and see that they've done something wrong. You know what I mean? I'm curious what that journey was for you.
1: Uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't a self-talk. It was like, it was a talk with one of my best friends. Okay. Um, I, I was very offended by the comment that started it. So I came home the day long story short, I was giving a speech, um, a person that I cared very much for who had been a mentor in my career was, was there. Mm -hmm. And the feedback of the speech was all you did was talk about yourself and it was obnoxious. Mm. Um, And then he further went on to say like, this is your kryptonite. Your kryptonite is that, you you know, is all the bombast actually hides the fact that you're, that you're really talented and hardworking. Mm. And I went home and I was meeting a friend for dinner. And so I was like, just unloading about it. And then the friend that I had dinner with said to me, like, do do you need to care as much about what people think of you as you do? And I'd never really, I'm I'm a bit of an anarchist. So uh, I, I had never really thought of myself as a person that cared what people thought about me. And I said to her, like, what do you mean? I don't care what people think about you. And she said, when you always turn up the volume on all of your character traits, when you're outside of your closest circle. So you must care. And I thought about that. I was like, Oh, I do. I play this weird heightened version of myself in the world. And we had a long conversation about it. It was very therapeutic. I'm not going to go into all of it, but at the end of the day, what I realized was that everything about me that was bullshit was because I was afraid. Mm. I was afraid that if I just put it out there, mm. that people wouldn't like it or it wouldn't be good enough. It, 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 some sort of version of imposter theory, right? Where it's sure, like, well, sure. what if people find out that I'm actually totally unqualified, somebody just gave me the wheel. Like, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and basically what she said to me is like, well, would you rather not get caught being unqualified or would you rather find your humility and work on being qualified and capable? Uh, And that was a huge turning point for me because I realized that all of the energy I had externalizing my competency was actually time taken away from focusing on my competency.
0: How wise.
1: You know, so it was, I've always in life, whether it's, you know, friends, mentors, peers, therapists, it does like, to me, external insight into how I operate and having the ability to be open-minded about taking criticism, is is the key to all of my personal unlocks. Hmm.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That educated me. So I know it I know that resonated with other people who are going to hear this conversation. Um doubts. What is your relationship <laughs> with doubts? How do you know when to push something and to let it go? What is that for you?
1: Um I think the first thing that I would say about that is that like if you are not suffering from some level of chronic doubt, you're probably not that ambitious. <laughs> um, I, I could totally, like I now know what I could do that would work, right. you know, with 98% accuracy. Mm-hmm. Also, those are the least exciting projects because you know they're going to work or you know exactly what you're doing. Like, like you know, uh, simple journeys don't have a lot of learnings in their hand for you yeah difficult stuff you'll learn a lot from you get bumped, you get bruised you get knocked up a little bit but no well not knocked up it's a different thing (laughs) but uh, but maybe you do but uh, I've never experienced that um you know but it's the hard stuff that's the best stuff I mean it really is and you know uh so so I don't necessarily sometimes I think of doubt as like it's a it's a safety mechanism right, right. doubt is it, doubt is saying to you i think there's two versions of it one is like getting down on yourself or not believing in something yeah. doubt is like is this a little insane yeah. is like it, you know is could this really ever work or or is it just a you know a, a total fool's errand right. and then what happens is when you experience doubt you go all right, so I need to work harder. I need to make it better. I need to think down down road about what problems I'd like. I really have to have a plan for this because it is audacious or it is risky or it is whatever you know, insert description. So I experienced doubt every single day of my life. Yeah. Uh, but I would be really worried if it went away.
0: Do you have a do you have a um, a conversation with yourself on when, uh, I mean, at this point, you can probably d- describe to yourself what types of doubts are coming in. You know, it could just be the mind playing a trick on you saying, no, 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 you're not good enough for that. Or it could be a new doubt that you've never experienced before. Do you have this way of of efficiently rolling through these doubts as they come up on new projects?
1: I don't know that it's efficient. I like, I don't have to justify that. What it is, is very process-based, right? So I like to, and I'll give you a a current example of this. Great. Um, I I am a problem solver. So I love deconstructing things step-by-step. That is how I find the solution to almost anything in my life. So let's use chicken and biscuits as an example of this. Sure. Um, I get this email from Douglas Lyons, our playwright, who I'd never heard of and never met. Uh inviting me to read this, another project as well, maybe come to the Queen's Theater and see this show. Um, you know, I read it, I was like, wow, this guy is uber talented. Really like continued conversations with him, but wasn't thinking much of it, didn't hadn't yet gotten out to Queens, pandemic hits. Everything shuts down. <laughs> Fast forward past the part where it was like stabilizing the shows, working with the trade unions, dealing with insurance, all of that stuff. Fast forward past that, and you start thinking about like, okay, well, now I've got some time to think about what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And I'm still talking to Douglas, and he's like, you know, why well, I want to, you know, I want to keep producing. And I said, well, why wouldn't you just take this thing to Broadway? I think, like, not that there aren't rewrites to be had. There always are. Not that it was ready that day. But I was like, you have the talent to, to go to Broadway. And he's like, nobody's going to take, you know, this show from an unknown playwright you know with a with a first-time broadway director who's young mm-hmm. with with you know two two producers he had attached to it that i said i wasn't comfortable moving forward the project unless they came with it mm-hmm. um you know that were first that are first-time black lead producers um uh, you know he he and he's selling me on not producing the show right <laughs> i mean like this is the conversation is he's like <laughs> why would you do this and i had this conversation where i was like no, wait a minute. The entire reason to do this show is new playwright, new director, two new producers to be introduced to the world, three new Broadway designers to introduce the world. So, so like I get right behind that because I'm like, I love the underdog. I was the underdog. Mm-hmm. Like I think if you manage to to, to score a goal as much as to the underdog, you got to remember to pay it forward because mm-hmm. somebody helped you. You better put that back in the universe. Mm-hmm. But then you decide to do it. Sure, there was a moment where I was like, What the hell did I just do? Like, I have people in every position of this show that have never operated at this level before, that don't even understand the process because you, Broadway is kind of a quirky process. Like, how do you get the theater? What does the license look like? What step happens before what other step? You know, I'm a playwright and I'm used to having to self-produce my stuff. So I, you know, I'm talking to the theater. I'm talking to the, the, I am the producer. I am the social media. How do I learn to actually just do the playwriting job? Because now that's my... Like you, I started doubting it, right? And then you go, wait, let let me deconstruct that down. Are all of these people brilliant and capable? Yes. All right. So if they're fully capable, what are they missing, if anything? Experience. All right. How does, how does one gain? What is, what is the gaining of experience? Education. That's all it is. It's education. Oh, okay. So I really do have the problem that I was doubting. I do have that problem. A bunch of people who've never done this before. All I have to do is plug in the education. Mm-hmm. So then you build a plan and you say, all right, I'm gonna sit down with Douglas and I'm gonna say, let me walk you through exactly what this journey is gonna be like for you. And here's how it's gonna work. And here's what's gonna happen when it lands in the press. And here's how that might change your life. And here's what you can focus on so that your show ends up right. Cause that's what really matter. Uh-huh. Not how many articles do you do, not how many social media followers, So you go through and you say, I'm gonna share what I've been through. And frankly, I'm gonna talk openly and honestly about all the mistakes I've made on the way Mm -hmm. and try to help my team and my peers, this family I've chosen, avoid those same mistakes. So the doubts are really just helping you figure out where you have a potential threat. Once you identify a threat, it's real easy to plan on how to not have it affect you. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.